Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, Majesty, have you started recording on sound on the... Uh, I didn't bring it up. Never mind. Don't worry about it. It's my fault. Not you. That was my bad. Not your bad. For once. Amen. All right. Uh, rest of you, go ahead and get your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter number 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Hold your spot there and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be looking at both chapters this morning. So 1 Samuel 15 and 1 Samuel chapter number 9. Uh, in 1961, there was a, a counselor at a community center in San Francisco who had a, a, a troubled teenager. Uh, this young man uh, had a lot of talent, uh, had a lot of charisma, uh, had a, a lot going for him, but he was running around with the wrong crowd, he was getting in trouble, and he had actually uh, just been arrested for robbing a liquor store. And so he, he was trying to figure out what he could do to help reach this young man, uh, to try to get him on the, the right path. And so he, he did something he thought would never work, but he reached out to, to Willie Mays. Uh, famous baseball player. And he, he wrote to Willie Mays and told him about this kid and said, look, I just think if you would uh, spend some time with him and maybe try to invest in him, maybe you would uh, help get him on the right track. And surprisingly, uh, Willie Mays agreed. And so he, he took a, an afternoon and he spent an entire day uh, with this young man. Uh, and the counselor thought, well, man, uh, this this kid, he, he idolizes Willie Mays. And so if he gets some, some good... Uh, authority, male figures, maybe it'll work. And so Mays, uh, he spent the whole afternoon with him. Uh, now, he didn't talk to this, this teenager about uh, the dangers of making bad choices or uh, the benefits of making good choices. He just he showed him around his house. He showed him his brand new car. He showed him his big new house. He showed him his, all his nice clothes and just all the things that his, his wealth and fame had been able to purchase him. And, and it worked. This young man uh, saw what he could get if he went on the right path and used his talents for good as opposed to allowing his life to continue down this, this dark turn. And it, you know, this, this young man, he actually became uh, one of the most famous football players of all time. Uh, more famous than even Willie Mays. Made more money than even Willie Mays. But there was a problem. Uh, in 1994, this famous athlete, this famous football player, was arrested for murdering his wife and her boyfriend. Uh, of course, it was O.J. Simpson. And during the trial, uh, they called Willie Mays to be a character witness for O.J. Simpson, but he declined. He said the only interaction he had ever had uh, with O.J. was about professional success, uh, not marital issues. Uh, O.J. Simpson, he learned to imitate Willie Mays' success, but not his character. Not how he truly needed to be. A biographer who recorded this story for Willie Mays uh, said he'd have to wonder what would have happened if Willie Mays would have taken time to explain to, o to a young O.J. Simpson what really mattered in life instead of trying to impress him with fancy cars and, and big houses and big bank accounts? What if he had talked to him about having character as opposed to having charisma and challenged him to use his talents to protect others? You know, at the, at the end of the day, the most important quality in any leader, the most important quality in any spouse, the most important quality in any employer, the most important quality in any one person is character. Who you are when no one's looking. You know, we're all aware of leaders that look good on the outside. They look the right way, they say the right things, they act the right things, but over time, uh, going through trials, going through temptations, whatever they go through, eventually what is inside is truly revealed. You know, the book of 1 Samuel is about Israel's search for a king. The first half of the book is 
about how God was preparing them for that king. God had promised to give them a king, and God had a king in mind for them. But Israel had gone to a different route to pick a king that they wanted. You know, the problem was, wasn't that Israel was asking for a king, but their motivation for a king. They didn't want a king because God had promised them one, and they were waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. They wanted a king because they looked around them and they saw everyone else had a king and they thought a king's going to protect us and a king's going to provide for us and a king's going to be there for us. And so they wanted a king for national identity. They wanted a king for security. And they wanted a king to make them happy. And the problem was they were looking for all those things in something other than God. In chapters 3 through 7... God shows them that the the most important thing in a leader is integrity. Of course, we saw the story of Eli and his sons, uh, how they were very corrupt leaders and how they were abusing their position and and using their position to to take advantage of women and using their position to steal money from the treasuries. And so God, during this dark time of, of spiritual leadership in Israel's history, He raises up Samuel. A young boy who no one expected, a young boy who no one thought should be a high priest or should be a prophet or should be a leader, but God calls him and without even knowing what God has for him, Samuel says, Lord, I'm here, I'll do what you want me to do. God was using that to show Israel the kind of king that they truly needed. And so, in chapter 8, God warns Israel through Samuel, says, look, if, if you... Take a king that you want to set the king I need you to I want you to have, and you give your heart to that king. And that king's going to enslave you. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your sons and your daughters. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your crops. He's going to he's going to use everything you've worked so hard for to to build his own treasury and to build his own self. And he's going to he's going to enslave you. He's not going to satisfy you. God warns them: the only king that truly satisfies is God. So that brings us to chapter number 9, where God shows them that character is the most important thing in a leader. We see that in the life of a man named Saul. Now I know we are four weeks into our study on the life of David, and we have not even talked about David. Uh, We will, not next week, but the week after. We'll, We'll get to David eventually, but we're laying a foundation for what the, the, the state of Israel was, what the world was like, what the culture was like when David came on the scene. You know, we, we, there's a reason we haven't talked about it. I mean, you know, we seek, even today, Israel was doing it, but we do it today. We seek salvation. We seek identity. We seek security. We seek happiness in all the wrong things. So talking about the history of David... Before we get to David, it's important because it's his origin story. But it's not just David's origin story, it's Jesus' origin story. So let's open up our Bibles and look at 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Ibiel, the son of Zeor, the son of Becoratah, the son of Apla, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upwards, he was higher than any of the people. Now, when you look at that, you know, he's goodly and there's nobody goodlier than him. It's not talking about his character or his abilities or anything. It's literally, when you look at it in Hebrew, it's talking about his looks. Saul was a stunningly handsome man. He's tall. He's dark. He's handsome. He's every girl's dream. Saul would walk by and the girls would just, oh, there's Saul, and swoon over him and all that stuff. And so... You know, he's, he's head and shoulders, he's taller than everybody else. He's muscular, he's, he's from a wealthy family. He's got all the pedigree. He's well known, he's well liked, he's good looking, he's rich. He is what people think of when they think of a king. They want a good looking guy. They want a tall guy. They want a strong guy. 
They want a guy with good pedigree and a good family. And he's, he's powerful and well-known, and that's Saul. Now God tells Samuel to anoint Saul as king because that's what the people want. And so Samuel does it. So now Saul, he, he starts off pretty good. Uh, his response to selling him to, to Saul, uh, to Samuel, telling him he's going to be king is very humbling. Uh, skip down to verse number 21 of chapter number 9. We'll see what his response is. <clears throat> and Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? In my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore speakest there, wherefore then speakest thou so to me? Saul, when Samuel comes to him, says, Samuel, you're going to be the king of Israel. This is what the people want. This is what God wants. Samuel Saul says, I, I, I'm not worthy to be that. He's very humble. He goes, you know, we're in the smallest tribe. I'm the smallest family in that tribe. You, you've got the wrong guy, Samuel. I'm not worthy to be king. I'm not worthy to do what, it, what you're asking me to do. And so he doesn't even want to be king. He's very humble. As a matter of fact, we weren't, we're not going to look at it today, but the story goes, when Samuel goes up, takes Saul up to the palace to officially coronate him as king and crown him as king, they're having the ceremony, Samuel gets the crown, he's ready to put it on Saul, and no one can find Saul. Because he's hiding in a closet. Scared to become king. He goes, I'm not worthy to be king. So he's, he's literally hiding from having this thrust upon him. He, he is a very humble at the very beginning. He humbly, uh, humility drove him to depend on God. In chapters 10 through chapter 15 of the book of 1 Samuel, show him being used by God greatly and doing great things for God and leading the nation of Israel in an incredible way. But then something happens. We get to chapter 15. So turn over to Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. <clears throat> Starting verse number 1. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken now to the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way, when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Now, when, when Israel was leaving Egypt as slaves, they come across the Red Sea, God crashes it down. They're, they're wandering through the wilderness. They have been slaves for over 400 years. They are not a fighting force. They're not a mighty army. They're not a mighty nation. They are a group of refugees. They have no training. They have no defense. They have nothing. When they are at their most vulnerable, the nation of Amalek attacks them. Tries to destroy them. Now God fights for them and they're victorious. But for the next 300 years... The Amalekites had really been a thorn in the sides of Israel. They'd been pillaging and plundering them. They'd been raiding into their territory and, and stealing their, their crops and stealing their animals and even stealing their, their children to make them into slaves. And so they have been just a burden to Israel for over 300 years. And, and God comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, enough's enough. Send Saul down there to defeat them. Now, it seems... A little, a little extreme. He didn't just say, hey, go beat them and let them know who's boss. He says, go down there and utterly wipe them off the face of the earth. Kill every man. Kill every woman. Kill every child. Kill every baby. Even kill the animals. Leave nothing of them. And look, that seems very harsh. And you know, a lot of people are like, man, God is condoning genocide here. And he's, he's really not. There was a purpose to it. And the Amalekites, long before God had sent this, this, this judgment on them, they had many opportunities to accept God as their God, as their one true God, and become, become Christians or become believers. Of course, they couldn't be Christians yet because Christ hadn't come, but Jews got saved the same way we get saved. They believed that Jesus would come, would die in their place, would rise again. We look back know that He did, believe that He did. And so they had opportunities to get saved, but God knew that if He allowed the Amalekites 
to live so close to Israel, eventually they would corrupt Israel. He'd seen it time and time and time again. Every time a nation comes in, they would end up corrupt in Israel. So, but God gives them instructions, and the instructions are very clear. Destroy everything, and don't touch anything. It's a lot like His instructions at Jericho, when they first came through. God told them, said, you know, He gave them a weird plan, march around seven times, blow your trumpets when the walls fall, go in and destroy everything, and don't take anything. Don't touch anything. One guy took some clothes, took some gold, took some silver. Next town they come to, AI, defenseless little village. They're pushed back. Thirty-some men are killed because one guy disobeyed God. So it's the same instruction. And they knew, they knew what would happen if they disobeyed. So God says, go in, kill everything, destroy everything, don't touch anything, don't bring anything back. Very clear, concise instructions. Look at verse number 7 of chapter 15. And Samuel and Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to shore, that is, over against Egypt. And he took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, they utterly destroyed. So Saul takes the king alive. And in this culture, uh, you know, he, he's, he's blatantly disobeying God. But in this culture, uh, having an enemy king as a prisoner was a, a status symbol. Once a year, they would have a parade through the capital, and every king would bring out their, their prisoners to show how powerful they were. And if you had kings in your prisoners in that parade, it made you very powerful and very strong. It was a warning to other nations, hey, don't invade us because we'll, we'll destroy you and we'll take your king as, as, as prisoner. So it was a, a status symbol. They were trophies to the nation. And then look again in verse 9. It says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings. Now in Hebrew... The word spared is in the singular tense. And you would expect it to, to be plural. Because again, Saul and the people. It, in that, in that, that little phrase there, Saul, is that singular or plural? Saul and the people, plural. Saul and the people, plural, spared, singular. Now in English, that's bad grammar. In Hebrew, it's making a point. It is saying... Yeah, Saul and the people were there, but the first guy made the decision. It wasn't the people. Saul spared the king. Saul spared the best of the animals. Saul was the one who, on his own accord, with his own authority and his own power, he unilaterally decided we're not going to obey God completely. Saul did this, not the people. Now look at verse number 10. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. There are verses like, verses like this kind of bother me, because it's a couple of times in Scripture where God repents. He repented of sparing Israel. He repented of making Adam and Eve because of their sin. He repents now of making Saul a king. Now, and it kind of bothers me because, I mean, you know, God's, God's perfect. God's sinless. God does not make mistakes. So what does God have to repent over? Now, the Hebrew word here literally means to regret. So God regretted making Saul king. Now that's still bad. Because again, if God's all-knowing and God's all-powerful and God's omniscient and God knows 
You know, everything that's going to, if God's eternal, He knows how things are going to end before it even started. How can He make a decision that He regrets? Look, we've all, we've all done things we've regretted, right? Anybody made a decision they regret? We all have. Whether it's, you know, taking a job you shouldn't have taken. Whether it's, like I explained in Sunday school, driving 35 miles an hour down uh, View Avenue because they enforced that 25 mile an hour speed limit like crazy. Whether it's eating, you know, eating too much. Uh, dessert at Thanksgiving. You know, we all have things where we, we regret it. We made a bad decision and we regret it. But our regret, see, God's regret isn't like our regret. Our regret is over to make, making a bad decision, making a mistake. God, when it talks about God's regret, it's not about God saying, man, I should, that, that was a bonehead decision. In the Hebrew, God's regret is, is sadness. What the Bible is literally saying here is God is going to Samuel and saying, I am mourning over what Saul has done. I am sad over, not the decision I made, I am sad over what Saul has done with the blessings I have given him. And Samuel is so upset that he cries all night to God. And then he wakes up and he goes to meet Saul in the morning. So look at verse number number 12. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and has gone about, and passed on. He, He set up a place and has gone about, and passed on, and gone down to Gilgal. Now, again, you look at that wording, and you're like, okay, so Saul... Uh, went to, to, to Carmel and he set up a place and did a thing and now he's gone somewhere. And it's confusing. You've got to break it down in Hebrew. What this literally is talking about is, is Saul had set up a monument to himself. He sets up a monument to his greatness, to his virility, to his power. And he is making the nation of Israel praise him because of what he's done, not praise God. Look at verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meanest then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? So Saul sees Samuel coming, he thinks he's coming to praise him, to congratulate him, he goes, Hey Saul, Samuel, Samuel, man! I did exactly what God said. Man, we wiped him out. It was awesome. It was great. And Samuel says, oh really? You obeyed God completely? Those are your sheep? Because you didn't have sheep when you left. But now you got sheep when you're coming back. So tell me, Saul, if you obeyed completely, why are there sheep here? What's going on here? And uh, so, you know, here's the thing. Here's what the Bible's telling us right here. Here's something we, it's not part of my points, but it's something we need to know. Your sin will always be revealed. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. You cannot hide your sin very long. So what you do when the Holy Spirit confronts you with your sin is of incredible importance. What Saul does when he is confronted by his sin is he puts the nail in his coffin over God's blessing on his life. Look at verse 15. And Saul said, They, who's they? The Israelites. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. So Saul is confronted with his sin. And what does he do? They made me do it. It's not my fault. It's their fault. I wanted to obey Samuel. I, I, I told him we can't do this. But they made me. It reminds me of, reminds me of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Satan lies to him. Eve eats the fruit. Hands it to Adam. Adam eats the fruit. They know they're naked. They, they cover themselves up and God comes and says, Adam, where are you? Adam says, well, I was hiding because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? He could have said, God, I, I ate the fruit. I disobeyed you. I sinned. But he says, no, that woman, that woman you gave me, she made me do it. What does Eve do? 
well, God, I was, you know, it was my fault. I know she goes, well, that snake told me to do it. Always casting blame. See, that is not true repentance. And we're going to see this eventually in David's great sin with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet comes to him and Nathan the prophet confronts him with this sin. And you know what David does that is different than what Saul does? David says, I've sinned against God. I did it. He didn't say, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing so sexually where I could have seen her. She should have shut her curtains. It's not my fault. No, David said, I did it. I sinned against God. I hurt the nation of Israel. I did this. That's why he's a man after God's own heart, and Saul is rejected by God. Because Saul's confronted with the sin. He goes, well, it wasn't me. It was them. It was the people. They made me do this. Look at verse number 16. I've got to find it again. Uh, Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said unto me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou, uh, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. So Samuel, Samuel says, Look, Saul, when, when you were nothing, God made you king. When you were nothing, God lifted you up. But that wasn't enough for Saul. He wanted to make a name for himself separate from God. Look at verse number 20. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the spoil, the sheep of the oxen, the chief of the things which they which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord the God in Gilgal. Now look, even if, even if Saul was right and the people disobeyed God with the sheep and the oxen, he just admitted he disobeyed God. I went down, I utterly destroyed him. I just brought back Agag. God didn't say, hey Saul, go down there and kill everybody with the king. He said, go destroy everybody. So what Saul is telling to Samuel is, hey look, I'm not perfect, but I obeyed like 98% of what God said. That's pretty good. That's pretty good odds. I've done pretty good, pretty much what God said, and the only reason I disobeyed was because of the people. Look at verse number 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat as rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as, as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Now look, that seems extreme, because when you, when you think of witchcraft, what do you think? You think like Harry Potter, or you know, the witches, you know, the wicked witch of the West, she's riding around on a broom. Yeah, I think you might have And in this culture, in Hebrew, it's literally taught, it's translated into Satan worship. God says, if you disobey me, you're just like worshiping Satan. You're a Satanist. You're an idolater in the eyes of God. Now, Saul isn't bowing to idols right now. He's not sacrificing children or trying to cast spells. You know, and I guarantee every single one of us here have at one time in our life disobeyed God. How many of you can honestly say, I've disobeyed God once or twice? Yeah. You got to get your hands up. They didn't get her. She's, she's either not listening or lying to us. So she disobeyed God too, just right there. Now, we've all disobeyed God at one time or another. I don't think any of you have a pentagram in your garage that you light candles on and worship. I don't think any of you sacrifice chickens except on fifth Sundays. That's the only time we have a chicken sacrifice around here. But none of us are doing animal sacrifices. But here's what God's saying. There are still areas of every single one of our lives we have not fully surrendered to Him. And to God, that's exactly the same thing. Rebellion, disobedience to God are as bad as idol worship and Satanism in His eyes. Now look, you, you, all of us here, as far as I know, we are professing Christians. 
but we still have areas that we don't fully obey God on. We may be compromising our integrity in some area. Maybe you cheat on your taxes to get a better refund, and you justify it because, like, well, if I, if I, don't, if I give more to the government, they're just going to use it for, for stuff I don't agree with. They're going to use it for things that I think that are against the Bible. And so it's okay if I fudge the numbers on my tax return a little bit to get a bigger return, because I'm just taking money out of abortion. I'm just taking money out of this thing that I don't like or that the Bible speaks against. And so I'm doing, it's okay for me to do that. Maybe you're lying on a resume. Because you just you deserve that job and you know you're doing good. Maybe you're not a bad person. You just can't obey Jesus completely in that area. Maybe you refuse to tithe because you just don't trust God with your finances. You obey God everywhere else, but you can't trust Him with your money. Maybe God wants you to serve in some area of the church, but you just don't want to give Him your time, and so you continue to ignore Him and disobey Him with Him. Maybe your rebellion is in your beliefs. You and look. This younger generation of believers we have coming up is the one I am most concerned about. The generation Zers. Uh, and then the Alphas after them. Uh, which actually, you know, biblically maybe the Omega, maybe the last. But anyway, the Alphas. You know, this, this younger You know why? Because too many of them, some of them that live in my house, that I have to talk them through these things, Say, I don't, I don't like what the Bible says about sexuality and gender and marriage because they know people. Or they hear things or say things like, you know, I know what the Bible says about this sin, but it doesn't seem that bad. And it's getting worse and worse. And our culture is, is brainwashing them to have these ideas and these thoughts. And so you may be like, look, I believe God, but... Man, the things he says about marriage, the things he says about, about sexuality, those are just those are too extreme. You know, it's 2023, it's not 2000 BC. It's a different time. Here's the thing the Bible doesn't change. The Word of God doesn't change. Now, look, that doesn't mean that we're mean and hateful and arrogant and, and, and you know, hateful to everybody. And again, on Facebook, there's a reason I don't post. The only thing I post on Facebook is things about my kids being mean to me or my squirrels being nice to me. Now, there's a reason for that. Because I'm not on Facebook a whole lot. Because, especially now, it's Pride Month. And I'm going to see both extremes. From people claiming to be Christians. People who are on the one extreme. Who are the rainbows, God's promise. And anyone that uses it differently is an abomination. And they bashing the LGBTQ crowd. And the others who are trying to justify the sin of the LGBTQ and I just want to be like Jesus going, look, y'all are both wrong. We're just going to love people and allow the Holy Spirit to change them. I'm not going to bash them. I'm not going to embrace them. But I'm, not going to ba- I'm not going to say, well, you, you, know, you live your truth. No, no, no. We live the Bible truth. But I'm not going to sit there and say, well, you're against the Bible, so you're an abomination to God and you're going to go to hell. No, I'm going to love them like Jesus and let, let the Word of God change them. That's why I stay off of stuff. But too many people are trying to justify their sin. I don't agree with what the Bible says about that, so I'm not going to agree with it. You know, verse 20 literally says that if you uh, compromise, you try to write the, the rules of sin yourself, then you are just as bad as an idolater or a Satanist. Now, that seems harsh. You know, comparing obeying God... 98% of the time to being like Satan. But what was Satan's first... What was Satan's sin? Satan didn't sacrifice children. Satan didn't go out and commit homosexual acts. Satan's sin that got him cast out of heaven. He obeyed God in everything, but he says, you know what, I want to be like God. So God cast him out. What was his first lie to Eve? Hey, Eve, I know God made Adam and Eve, but it really should be Adam and Steve or whatever you want to say. To make it up, you know, he didn't. He didn't talk. He didn't say, "Hey, you, hey, why don't you, why don't you snort this coke right here?" No, he didn't say any of that. Hey, why don't you get drunk with me? He says, "Hey, if you eat this, you'll, you'll just be like God." She obeyed ninety-eight percent of what God said, but this obeyed one thing because she wanted to be like God. Refusing to surrender to God's authority is the original sin, and when we do that, we are following Satan. Surrender to God must be complete or it's meaningless. Just like in marriage. 
uh, April, um, August 29th, April and I are going to celebrate 25 years of marriage. If on our anniversary I take her out to dinner and we're having a nice romantic meal, and after we eat and have our dessert, I, I hold, grab her hands and I look her in the eyes and say, baby, I have been 98% faithful to you over these 25 years. How happy do you think she's going to be? 98%? I got an A-plus husband. That's summa cum laude. Man, he's a great husband. 98% faithful. No. She's going to be, oh, 98% faithful? Well, guess what? That 2% is going to kill you. You can't go to your wife and say, I'm going to be mostly faithful to you. I'll choose you most of the time. No. When I stood before God in that congregation, I said, I'm going to give myself to you fully. And only you. Until God brings us both home. That's what marriage, that's what God wants. You know, God wants us to give completely everything over to Him. If Jesus is not Lord of all, one theologian said, then He is not Lord at all. So what do you have today that you've not totally surrendered to Him? Any thought, any possession, any relationship, any sin that you are not completely giving to God... Samuel and the Bible says, so God says, you're a Satan worshiper. Well, God, I'm giving you everything else, just this one. That doesn't matter. I take it all of it, or I get none of it. <clears throat> you know, I'm not talking about, you know, struggling with sin. We all have sin we struggle with. I do, every day. And here's the thing, I don't mind Christians who struggle with sin. Because we all struggle with sin. I'm bothered by Christians who live how they want to and don't care about it. If you're not struggling, you need to check your relationship with God. So, I'm not talking about struggling with sin or besetting sin or things we're trying to conquer. I'm just talking about saying, you know what? I know what God says about this, but I don't care. Look at verse number 23 again. Uh, For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft... And stubbornness is his iniquity, idolatry. Look what he says. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Verse 24. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, at the beginning, that looks like repentance, doesn't it? I did wrong but he blames on the people still. I know I disobeyed and I repent of that, but I did it because. You know, it's like, and, and I've learned this, again, over 25 years of marriage, when you make your wife mad and you say you're sorry, don't ever say, I'm sorry, but here's why I did what I did. Doesn't matter why I did what I did. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but gets me hit upside the head. I'm sorry, but does it? And that's what Samuel Saul's doing. I'm sorry, but I was scared of the people. I'm sorry, but they made me do it. Look at verse 25. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Now, he's talking about after every victory, they would have a Thanksgiving ceremony uh, after winning a battle. And Samuel Saul knew that if he had this Thanksgiving ceremony and Saul and Samuel wasn't there with him, then the people would know something's wrong. See, Saul's main concern isn't how he looks to God. His main concern is how he looks in the people's eyes. There's going to come a time where God's going to confront you with your sin. You can either repent fully, completely, truly, or you can care about what people think of you. Repentance is not caring about what others think. Repentance is what David did. God, it's my fault. I'll do whatever I have to do. I messed up. I sinned against God. Look at verse 26. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned around, about to go away, he laid upon, and as Samuel turned around to go away, he laid upon the skirt of his mantle 
and rent it. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom from Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. So Samuel, he says he's not going to go. He leaves, Saul grabs him, he rips his shirt, and Samuel says, God just ripped the kingdom from you just like that. Uh, then look at the verse number 32. <clears throat> Samuel is my kind of preacher. Then said Samuel, Bring ye, bring ye hither to meet Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him delicately. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel uh, hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Alright, maybe you didn't catch what he did. Samuel says, Saul, God's done with you. He's taken the kingdom from you. Bring me Agag. Bring me the king. The king comes up to him, and the king's like, oh, here's a man of God. Here's a preacher. He'll be kind to me. Surely it's okay. You know what Samuel does? Hacks him to pieces. Takes a sword and chops him up into little bits. I love Samuel. He's a good guy. And I was going to do that with, with Lexus and have her come up here as an example and hack her to pieces, but he said I couldn't. Uh, I'll just prove with you what it does. But anyway... Uh, you know, he does what Saul should have done in the first place. Now, there's two things we're going to get through real quick uh, that this story tells us. Number one, prioritize majesty. Number one, prioritize, prioritize character, not charisma. This story teaches us that what usually grabs our attention at the beginning doesn't always serve in the long run. Israel is looking for a king to, to make them prosper, to make them proud, to, to protect them. All things that God was already giving them. And if God was the most important thing in their life, they would have chosen character over charisma. So look for things in a leader, in a spouse, in a job that help you obey God. That help you walk with God. Don't choose things that are going to steal your affection. Here's a, here's a question you've got to ask yourself. Would you rather have a great job with great pay, but it takes you out of fellowship with God, or a lesser job with lower pay, but you're still in God's will? Would you rather marry someone uh, who can fulfill all your dreams and man, they're they're the the everybody wants them and you they're just they're they're great husband or a great wife and you want to marry them but they take you out of fellowship with God or marry someone who God wants you to marry and how we answer that depends on what our primary source of identity, security, and happiness is. If God is, then the most important consideration is. Finding something, choosing something that helps you obey God. Because here's the thing, over time, beauty, charisma, they all fade. No matter how good it seems at the surface, at the beginning, they all fade. Character is what matters. The word sincere comes from two Latin words, sin, meaning without, and seer, meaning wax. It literally means without wax. And here's the, 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 the tradition behind Sincere being without wax. In those days, uh, you would, they would make a pot, or they would make a statue, and sometimes it would crack. And what they would do is they would fill in that crack with wax and then paint over it so you would never know until you put that pot in the sun. And the wax melted and it revealed all the imperfections. So something that was sincere was some, something that was pure, it had no imperfections. It was without wax. It was consistent on the surface all the way through. And so a sincere person was someone who didn't have charm or beauty covering up a heart of compromise. Charisma fades when the, melt, when the wax melts away, and what remains is character. And that's what's most important. Here's the second point. Number two, godly character always grows through Humility. Saul shows us how easily our lives can spiral out of control. His pride led to independence, which led to compromise, which led to turmoil. All sin starts with pride. It does with Saul, and it will with you. It, it starts when your will, your agenda, your melodies, your glory matters more to you than what God says. That leads to independence where you think you can, 
You can take care of things yourself. You are sufficient. I don't need God. I can take care of this myself. So you don't think a lot about what God wants because you can fix it yourself so you lose the fear of God. Here's the thing. When you talk about fear of God, you know, a lot of people think we're talking about being terrified of God. But we're scared of God's judgment and God's wrath. Here's the thing. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, you should fear the wrath of God because it's coming to you. But if you've accepted His death, burial, and resurrection, He's paid for the wrath of God, so I don't going to fear God's wrath. I'm going to fear God's judgment. Here's what fear of God literally means. If you go scuba diving deeper than 50 feet, you stay down there a while, you, you can't just shoot up to the surface because nitrogen bubbles will build up in your blood and you'll get the bends and you could get very, very sick. You could even die. So what you have to do is you go up 10 feet, wait, Five, ten minutes. Wait five minutes and go up another ten feet. Wait five minutes. Go up another ten feet and wait five minutes. And you keep doing that until you finally breach the surface. Which is it's fine. But here's the thing. When you're down there, you've got to watch your oxygen to make sure you have enough oxygen to make the ascent. Because again, you can't just shoot up. If you're down 50 feet, it's going to take you 20, 25 minutes to get up there. So you better have... 25 minutes of oxygen left as you begin your ascent. So when you're down there, you fear the oxygen. Now, you're not scared of it, you're scared of losing it. That's what the fear of God is. Not I'm scared of what God's going to do to me, but I'm scared that what, I'm, what I do is going to leave, is going to make God's presence leave me. That's how we are fear God. In any circumstance, we don't want to be cut off from Him. When you're independent, you don't care about being cut off from Him, and that leads... To compromise. We don't blatantly sin, so we offset our disobedience to cover our, our, our rebellious actions. We don't want to tie their income, so we tie their time. We don't want to work on a marriage, so we volunteer at church. We're having an affair, so we give a large gift to the church to kind of assuage our conscience. And you can't do that. God doesn't work that way. See, God offers salvation freely. He says, I've done everything necessary. I paid the sin debt. I died in your place. I absorbed the wrath of God. I was buried and I rose again to redeem you to God the Father. I'm going to give you salvation freely. I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to give you my power. I'm going to give it all to you. All I ask in return is total surrender. Compromise leads to turmoil. Saul, he loses the presence of God. And in chapter 16, the Spirit of God leaves him. Leaves Saul feeling insecure. He can no longer depend on God to fight for him. And he becomes jealous and, and anxious and the slightest criticism. He, he falls into a violent rage. He tries, you know, David's playing the harp trying to calm him and he gets jealous of David and tries to spear him with a, with a javelin, try to kill him with a javelin. The Bible says it very hilariously. He tries to pin him to the wall. So it's a nice way of saying he tried to kill him. Spend the last ten years of his life chasing David down to try to kill David because he thought that David was trying to steal his kingdom. The greatest benefit of being surrendered to God is the peace and security that comes from fully trusting in Him. See, I don't have to be sufficient because He is. I don't have to worry about tomorrow because He's already there. I don't have to work it out because God already did. You know, it's not devastating if others don't recognize my contribution because my job is to be a good and faithful servant. That leads to peace and, and, and surrender to God. You know, Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Sounds poetic, but who wants to be poor? Who wants to be poor in spirit? You know, we feel powerless. We can't go where we want, can't do what we want. See, God created us in a posture of neediness. After creation, God looked at everything and said, it's all good, but one thing. Adam was alone. That wasn't good. You know, all the animals, they had a mate, but Adam didn't. So God goes to Adam and says, Adam, everybody's got to mate you. You've got a problem. You better fix it, buddy. No, God says, I'm going to fix it for you. Puts him to sleep, takes a rib, makes Eve. So the first time a woman meets a man... He's waking up from anesthesia and post-surgery, so it's kind of goofy. Uh, that's why guys are kind of goofy, right? Amen? Okay, go ahead and get that. But anyway, so God created us in a posture 
of neediness. We have to depend on Him. Satan's lie was you don't need God. You can be just like God. He did what He did for you what you couldn't. That's the biggest lie we ever have, that we don't need God for anything. But God, we need Him for everything, including salvation. He did what we couldn't. Lived a sinless life, absorbed the wrath of God we couldn't, died in our place and rose again. When we realize our need for Him, we surrender to Him with no compromises and no conditions. You know, a king, fully dependent on God, is what God wanted to give him. Saul was the opposite. He caused Israel a lot of pain. Saul's story set them up for a different king. A humble servant boy, a little shepherd boy who wasn't impressive to look at, but he was fully surrendered to God. He was a man after God's own heart. He depended on God, and God gave him power. Gave him the power to defeat giants. Gave him the power to defeat Israel's greatest enemies. He had power that Saul never had. But David's not the ultimate king God wanted to give. That was Jesus. Jesus was even less impressive than David. He had no money. He had no political clout. had no army. He didn't stand head and shoulders above everybody else. Matter of fact, the book of Isaiah says that Jesus wasn't even that much to look at. It says there was no beauty. And it's you know, we see all these paintings of Jesus. He's just this, this strikingly handsome man. Isaiah said, he ain't that much to look at. He's not very handsome or attractive. He's not drawing us to him, but he was fully dependent on God. He prayed all the time. He was desperate to be with God. And that gave him the power he needed to overcome sin, to raise the dead, and to conquer the devil once and for all. His dependence on God gave him the power to die in our place and to rise again to redeem us to God the Father. We have two paths we can choose from. We can take Saul's path, where we take pride, which leads to independence, which leads to compromise, which leads to turmoil. Or, we can take the path of Jesus. Humility, that leads to dependence on God, which leads to surrender to God, which leads to peace with God. The choice is ours. Which path will we choose? Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.